I once had an argument with somebody. I told them what I did for a living, and this woman really didn't want someone like me writing the textbooks for her kids, apparently. <laughs> I guess I don't look smart enough. I don't know. But she was arguing with me. She kept saying, no, no, you can't be the one writing it. And I said, well, who do you think is writing it? They're hiring me to write these things. I actually do know these. I know what the skills are. I don't, you know, I know what I'm saying. She really had a hard time. So people are funny. I've had a lot of weird reactions. <laughs> but I think you don't often meet someone who writes a textbook. That's true. This is Professional Confessionals. Joe Pitkin discusses the challenges of authoring textbooks and how it draws upon her literary creativity in what she considers her survival job. Be sure to listen to Joe's other professional confessional about her primary career as a published poet. Let's talk about your professional journey after your degrees. How did you make a living? Okay, so there was I only took a year off between college and the University of Iowa. I did take a year off. That was a really important year. I really needed a rest. College was pretty intense. So I went to Boston because I knew it was, guess what, a town of writers. I knew going back to Longfellow. I mean, there were all sorts of writers in Boston. That was the literary, you know, capital of the United States. So I went there, of course, met tons of writers. There were tons of bookstores. It was just the right place for a young writer. And I worked eventually, I worked temp jobs. That's something every writer, every student in college right now should be willing to do. You're going to have to figure out some, you know, barista, whatever. Mm-hmm. But te- I did temp jobs. But I was aiming to get into, a bu- into publishing because I had edited in college. This magazine had run a staff, you know, managed a budget. I put out six issues, which is a lot for two years worth of school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think the semesters, I don't know why we did three, but we did three a year. So I felt very comfortable with this idea that maybe book publishing was for me. Again, it took a long time to get into a publishing company because they're also a closed place. It's not so easy. And the only good news for people listening is that it's all on the job training. You cannot prepare for a life in book publishing. There are some courses. There's one that's at now at Columbia, but that was the Radcliffe Publishing Seminar. That was a popular one that people did take. So you got an overview of what book publishing involves, all the little funny jobs that are within that, and you get some leads. But it's so, you just can't prepare for it. There's no real undergraduate path. So People who come into it are just typically... English majors, Mm -hmm. (laughs) usually. And this is another thing about publishing. There's so many different aspects to it. I, of course, at 22, thought, well, obviously I should be a trade editor because that's trade books, that's, you know, fiction and nonfiction. That's really what I understand. That's what I should be doing. It's not the only kind of publishing, but that was what I was aiming for. I didn't quite get there. I got a low-level entry. It was like a part-time job at Houghton Mifflin. This is at 22. Um, I later picked up a second part-time job also at a publisher, Alice James Books, very small. It was a feminist press. I fit right in. I felt very comfortable. They actually came to me and asked me to work for them. So I had two different images of publishing, small press and just regular, you know, big publishers. And that was great experience. But then I, you know, left to go to graduate school. While I was in graduate school, I also, because of my job at Houghton Mifflin, they had a subsidiary in near Iowa City. 
I got a job as an editorial assistant. So I was working my way up the, there's a huge hierarchy and it's a ladder and you've got to climb it. You've mm-hmm. got to hit certain steps and fit, you know, learn certain skills to keep moving on. But at least I was an editorial assistant. And I, I really, that was when the, my life became two parts because in the morning I would jump on a bus at 6 a.m., go out to the publishing company, work half a day, jump back on the bus, get back to the campus, sit and eat my yogurt in the student union, reading the worksheets. We had workshops, you know, all afternoon. I remember on Monday afternoon, two hours. I had to just review what I had made notes on because we were going to give critiques to our classmates or read a book or whatever I had to do for that day's class. And I think my life hasn't changed. I have like a half a day of one kind of thing and half a day of the other. The publishing job wasn't necessarily, again, perfect, but I learned a lot and I enjoyed the people I worked with. So that has been a theme since then. And when I moved back, when I finished my degree two years later, I moved back to Boston because I liked it a lot. Again, worked temp jobs. Now I had my MFA. I realized it was worth nothing to anyone. There were no teaching jobs because back then, again, there weren't enough programs. So there was nothing to even apply for. I think there was like a job in Alabama at the time. And I thought, I don't want to go there. And I have not taught. I really don't feel comfortable. So I just, again, tried for Houghton Mifflin because that was the publisher I liked. And I got a job in the secondary English department. And that's how I got into textbooks. I didn't know what textbook publishing was about. Someone said to me, there's an opening, they need somebody, and again, starting at the bottom. But that's where I got all my experience of just writing for kids and how a book gets put together. And I think that I I will tell this because this is my favorite memory of that. I had really old school editors and they were very, this is a real mentoring thing. I had to actually, this is how long ago it was, I had to watch film strips of how to proofread. (laughs) They had like these little, they'd have classes, they'd make us go. And I'm sure today it's a PowerPoint, but they want to teach you all of these things. They want you to learn proofreading and learn copy editing and all of that. It was very interesting, but I had one of these wonderful editors who was old school, and she said to me, Joe, do you think you could, could you read My Antonia by Willa Cather and write a book review as though you're a ninth grader, as a model for this book, because they were showing students how to write a book review, like the way, you you know, start the introduction. I mean, there's a formula, or there was a formula to do that. And I just, my eyes must have bulged because I was thinking, sit and read Willa Cather on work time and get paid for this? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I think that was the day I got completely hooked because they, and they loved my, I combined the creativity I had and the training I had from Iowa with what they asked me to do. So I wrote these crazy things. I wrote about the history of spoons, you know, pizza, of course, that's a pretty common one, I guess now. But I wrote about, I remember my boss coming over to me and saying, I love your passage about manatees. (laughs) So I think I was trying to make this interesting for myself as much as thinking, gosh, students must be bored about reading all these sentences about puppies and, you know, nonsensical stuff. So I really dug in and I really, I, we had a company library and I would mine all the current magazines. I think I probably thumbed through all the Smithsonian's and I was looking for topics I could use and then, you know, recreate or or write about on the level that I was supposed to write about. 
and also for the purpose, because so many times this was, to, you know, you'd have to write something that, and you'd ask them to find all the verbs. So this was grammar and composition. That's what secondary English entailed. It was very interesting. I loved the people there. Loved being in a skyscraper <laughs> overlooking Boston. But, you know, I did trade the fluorescent lights after a few years for freelancing. So that's what I've been doing ever since. So you went into freelancing. And since then, you've been kind of on like a dual path yeah. of writing creatively and writing for um, kids. For kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For and again, I, I think this is another advice point here. But I feel like it's really important to be adaptable. You know, so many, uh, including my nieces, I sometimes think people get locked into an idea of what they want, or they think they know what they want. And that changes, as you know, I mean, that changes that can change from year to year. I mean, and I think that's, I think being open, and probably being a little bit flexible is good. I was flexible because I really wanted to work in book publishing. I really, I did go and meet people in the trade division. I introduced myself to people. I remember talking to the man who did the, all their poetry series at the time. They still have poetry. Houghton Mifflin has a good poetry line. But I thought that that was where I, sh I should aim for him. <laughs> I should make sure that when he left, I would take his job. I never got into trade. I just ca I went into this job thinking this will last a year or two and I'll see it what you know and I'll move to where I really belong but I I have I didn't I stayed in that I think the same thing is true of the freelancing so our project was done we had produced books six through grade six through 12 of this grammar and composition series and a lot of people were leaving because some of them were we were hired temporarily or whatever and two of my colleagues said they're going to form a freelance company and they would be supplying materials to, you know, I don't know what you would call it in like the regular world, but it's like vendors, I guess, or developers, we call them suppliers, they supply the material the publisher needs on demand. So I like this idea when they said they were going to hire freelancers, I asked what that entailed. And they said, well, you know, the work will come in dribs and drabs and but you can work from home. Again, I said, I'll try it for the summer. Let me see how that goes. But I, that's what I've done for many, many years. So I think I, I wanted to see how that would feel, and I just thought I would try it. I had been offered a job in the company. I had interviewed for a job. I didn't think it was really a great fit. It was permissions. Again, it wasn't editorial. They wanted somebody who would grant permission for use, reusing the work in their books, sometimes in textbooks especially. They use work from other people as models or whatever. So you'd have to go get permission to use it. Kind of an administrative position? It was totally, admit, yeah. And permissions is, is a very important part of publishing, but it wasn't the part that I thought I would be good at. So I didn't take that job, but I think I'd probably be making more money now if I had stayed there or done something for that long, you know. But I always felt that what I enjoyed was the writing part. I've also been an, a proofreader. I mean, when I first started freelancing, I you can't say no to things. You have to build a client base. So, but of course, I was a proofreader for Harvard University Press. These weren't shabby places that were in that area. That was a wonderful experience too. You make much less money. It's a little bit harder. It's a specific thing. They just want you to proofread manuscript. But I did all those jobs. I did a little bit of everything. 
when you moved to work from home, did you miss going in and the people and the... I did, because I was really pretty young, too. And I think that losing that sociability... I mean, I remember that people would hang their heads over your cubicle and they'd say, hey, did you see that new movie? Or they'd talk about, well, in Boston, it was always... First, it was weather. Second, it was sports. (laughs) Third, they'd get around to the cultural scene. But I think that I miss that a lot. But there were ways of figuring out how to get through that isolation. I mean, I always walked. I walked to the pizza shop. I walked to the laundromat that I had at the time. I walked to the library, the post office. I made sure to walk because I wanted to be out among people. And I think also I started to reach out. There are a lot of freelance organizations. So if anybody is interested in freelancing, I was in something called the Freelancers Editorial Association. It doesn't exist now, but there's a big organization I am part of in New York, EFA, Editorial Freelancers Association. So a little bit different name, but all of these organizations will bring people together. And they're great resources. They tell you about rates and... They tell you there's a scam happening, avoid this company. You know, still need that kind of help. Are there scams in, in, in publishing? your industry? Lately, people apparently are getting contacted because I guess we're all in a database probably. Yeah, people, there are a lot of... The and, peop- it's, and it's industry-specific type yes. of scam? Yes, it'll be like all Spanish translators are getting hit up for something. Yes, it's very odd. You wouldn't think that people would figure out ways to try and exploit each other, but there was a a uh, long-running scam where people were asked to do sample edits or sample writing, like show that they can actually write a passage the way, you know, someone would ask for a specific thing. We later found out that a lot of these places were taking the work. It wasn't copyrighted. You thought you were doing it for a test, but they'd use it. So I don't, I would never do tests, but... You know, and then they'd have all this material that they could use over and over again and make money from. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. It's interesting that you would never think of that, yeah. but but reputable publishers and reputable companies are there are many more of those. But we could talk about you wanted to get into the the downside of all of this. Well, well, I'm, I'm waiting for that part because I got some ideas. <laughs> I did want to ask. Were there key moments in your career that lifted your skill level or were a key to your success? Well, let's see, specific moments. That's interesting. I mean, I, again, I think probably every time I took on a new freelance job, I learned something. It's very interesting. I don't. Th- I think that's what makes it kind of addictive because I have been asked to do things I've never done. And now that, of course, today is a lot of technical Stuff. I mean, I remember someone saying, and you need to do the coding on this. And I thought that was very interesting. I, of course, am a diva at this point. And I always say, I'm a writer. I don't do coding. And I also really don't want to do art research either. But I've had to do an awful lot of photo, you know, there's stock photo sites and you get stock photos to go with the stuff you've just written. Mm. That's not the way it was when I first started out. There was a whole graphic arts photo research departments. I mean, those jobs seem to have gone by the wayside. So in the professional side of this, the money-making side of the writing, there's a lot more demands now on our time and our energies, but I have learned a lot of skills. So I, I know my way around all those stock photo sites. I know several of them and can find you a picture of a baboon <laughs> hanging from a tree or whatever 
whatever you, whatever they say they need or whatever works. Let's talk about the, as you say, the downsides, the the obstacles or the the things to avoid within the field. I just think things have sped up with technology, and that's something that's a cautionary thing too to to not get drowned by the deadlines and the, it's overwhelming what people ask for and it is very competitive too. When I started out it wasn't like that and I think we were treated a lot better. That is one of my biggest disappointments is that I've seen the whole field change and the career paths that people take. An awful lot of people try publishing and get out of it because it isn't the pay rates haven't gone up much. They went down during the recession by a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was really hard. I mean, I was hearing stories of editors inviting their ex-husbands back to live with them to share expenses. And there were a lot of crazy stories, but people were having a hard time. We couldn't find work, a lot of us. So I think the recession had a really hurt people. But again, at, that's not going to happen in our lifetimes, that kind of recession. That was a deep one. So... Just recently, I've had the, the one question that comes up all the time is, how do you know what to say? Do they tell you what to write? And I said, no, no, I have to write it. <laughs> they can tell me what's wrong with what I've written. But people are, really can't figure out how you get from A to Z, you know. And usually you get an outline or some instructions uh, about what it's going to be or you have something to format from, but a lot of times they just, like I said, someone will say, we want you to write, rewrite, a, we need a folktale. <laughs> Can you find a folktale and retell it? Because they don't want to pay for the permissions of the other person's folktale. <sighs> but I've had weird assignments and I've, usually it's, they mostly tell you what the word count is, you know, but I have to come up with that on my own. And I think that really stumps people. Like, how, where does it come from? But so much of it is research, and research is great for writing anything, as you know. I mean, you find out interesting stuff. So in the world of freelance educational writing, pay is done differently. Sometimes it is hourly, and you can look that up in the Editorial Freelancer Association. They have a schedule. up. To, it's up to date. It's based on a survey of all their membership. Mm-hmm. So you can get a feel for what the rates are, and they really break it down to very specific types of writing. Technical writing would be a better bet for a little bit more money. So they'll tell you what the hourly rates are. But yes, I mean, many times I was just given a flat fee for a chapter. And then, you know, if it's a chapter and you know the material and you can breeze through it, that's great. If you're struggling, it's not so great. So, yeah, by the piece or by, you know, some companies pay you per multiple choice question. I mean, it gets very, sometimes doing the invoices takes more time than it should also because <laughs> you have to keep track. But, you know, I think, and there are different, again, book publishing is pretty interesting in that you could do trade which is, like I said, that could be anything from a cookbook to a bestseller to a, you know, fine piece of literary fiction. There's technical writing. And a graduate of our school here, who I don't think I mentored, but I think she knew what I did for a living, wanted to go and worked on the literary magazine here in the high school, decided to go to study creative writing and did, and now works for a medical publisher. So publishing isn't just one kind of book. I mean, there's a lot out there think now also with digital, the digital world, I mean, there's just tons of opportunities that weren't there even when I started. So how do you recommend someone 
who wants to get into that field, how do they proceed? There are those god-awful <laughs> unpaid internships that I'm sure you're familiar with these now. I don't love that whole unpaid internship world, but I think that you can look for those. Again, there's something called, I love the site Boston Book Builders. It just happens to give a lot of information about everything, jobs, permanent in-house jobs, freelance jobs, and internships. And if you can find a paid internship, that would be probably the best way to start developing. You know, you need to develop like a network of people. If someone likes you, they're likely to keep you around. And that's like any job, you know, in any field. I think that probably, well, there are a lot of sites now. Media Bistro is one of them for publishing. There's tons of jobs on that. I never look at all the ones that other people know about Indeed and all these job things. I just look at this. There's definitely some for just publishing. And I, I look at them occasionally. Just one of the things I learned a long time ago is you always are going to find new stuff if you look around. And I've found new clients that way. I actually applied for a job. I haven't done that in a long time, but they were looking for a freelance writer who had my exact job description. Like that's what I do. And I've been working for them because they saw how much I've done. And But I think you can always be looking and learning and asking questions. I'm really nosy. <laughs> when I was young, I used to actually comb the classified ads. That's a throwback to a long time ago. But I would just look. I'd be, oh, my gosh. I didn't know that publisher was down the road. I, I, that's amazing. I've knocked on doors. I've actually gone and made, I used to go up to Boston from here make, you know, little meetings, like just to introduce myself. And I think because when you freelance, I don't, I've worked for people I've never met. I work for a lot of people out in Iowa, Oregon. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I hardly ever work for anyone in the metro area here, you know, tri-state area. So I'll never meet them, their voices on a conference call or whatever. So I think sometimes meeting people in person, then they get to hear who you are and they get to have more of an attachment to you. You become a real person. I think that's important sometimes with freelancing. And I think that that is also why my friends here always say you work too hard. But if you turn down those jobs, guess what? There's somebody on the list below you. Then they'll And they'll take that person. And they don't have any attachment to you because they haven't met you. And they're not saying, what a lovely person. We'd love to help you out. You're just, if you say I'm not available till September, they will forget about you for a long time. It seems many relationships in business are conducted that way today because of our the technology that sure. we use. And that's why I'm wondering how it's going to be in the future. Will people not have those personal connections? I mean, I have to say, I'm not in totally close touch with people I worked with many years ago, but I did form relationships. And I think one of the funnier coincidences, a couple of years ago, I, w- I want to say this is 2016, one of the publishers I work for a lot, they're up in um, near Lowell, Massachusetts, a horrible location to get to, but that just happens to be where they are. And they, you know, were having a launch meeting and we, they don't do this anymore. This was just a lovely thing where they called the writers. They, they knew who they wanted to hire. They called us in for these meetings, and I'm so unused to that now. I mean, it used to be that I would go have meetings pretty regularly before we started something. But to my shock, one of my close friends from when I lived up there was also writing. We were writing, it was grades K through 2, 
And she was going to be my grade two partner. She was writing half and I was writing half. And I was so excited. Mm-hmm. But I think those there are the small group of us and we know each other. And sometimes people will say, I remember you or I've heard of you. And I think that's important to make those connections. And I, th- I think maybe for someone starting out in this, I mean, again, they should just try it. And if they really hate it, then they'll leave it and try something else. But one thing about publishing is, you know, nothing's wasted. You do not pay a dime to go into publishing, if you know what I'm saying. I think there are many people that feel that if they pay $75,000 for college a year, they should come out of that with some really substantial, concrete career. Book publishing, you can't, as I said, you can't prepare for it. It's on the job. You can get into it and learn while you're in it. So it's not like you've spent what, you know, you've wasted any money preparing. So it's like going to school and working at the same time. It's true. And now I'm wondering, I haven't looked into this in a long time. There may be uh, some entrepreneurs out there who are doing like online classes in uh, all these skills. And I think actually Editorial Freelancers Association offers some seminars like, um, you know, online was it what I'm saying. I don't think they have a physical space that people go to. So anybody can take these and learn some copy editing skills and all that. But, you know, so much of it is going online and looking around and figuring out what's out there. As I said, there's not like a school. You don't go to like publishing school. (laughs) They don't tell you, you know. So is it something that you can do then without a college degree? Boy, I don't know if I've ever met anybody who did that, but you Theoretically, you could sure if you're if you are, have that aptitude toward words and language and you know and again I mean there's some people I'm a, not a very good copy editor I can't believe I'm admitting this I have learned that that's a different skill to me it's not I'm proofreading I'm excellent at editing I'm pretty good at pretty strong but copy editing strangely trips me up and that's just looking for the grammatical mistakes and you know it's the mechanics. Uh, punctuation, but somehow Mm -hmm. I have not scored well on any of those tests. And I I never really just devoted myself to that. Now, luckily, as the writer, you have a team of people behind you who are doing all that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I've worked with some excellent copy editors. That's a skill. It's It's a gift if you can do that. It's very stratified that way. I guess I'm making that sound funny, but, you know, it's like it's a collaborative thing. All these books, any of these books, the poetry books, the educational stuff, the textbooks, there's a lot of people involved. I, I always respected that. I mean, you'd see the work go away and come back looking so pretty. <laughs> Somebody chose a really nice font and designed it. And I think it's just fascinating. I've actually had the experience many times where I've sent something in, some word doc to somebody, and then it would come back all looking nice. And I, I would actually look at it and think, did I write that? I, I don't, I can't believe that because it looks so different. And, you know, I think that's still a thrill though. I once had an argument with somebody, I told them what I did for a living and this woman really didn't want someone like me writing the textbooks for her kids, apparently, <laughs> because I guess I don't look smart enough. I don't know. But she was arguing with me. She kept saying, no, no, you can't be the one writing it. And I said, well, who do you think is writing it? They're hiring me to write these things. I actually do know these. I know what the skills are. I don't, you know, I know what I'm saying. She really had a hard time. So people are funny. I've had a lot of weird reactions, <laughs> but I think you don't often meet someone who 
writes a textbook. That's true. I don't know. Yeah, maybe if you wore glasses. And- <laughs> <laughs> I know. Or it didn't look, I mean, I probably looked hippie, more like a hippie back then when this argument happened. But I just thought it was so funny. I remember saying, no, I really, this is really what I do. Because you look more like a creative than an academic, perhaps. And I think that's something, maybe there is a little stereotype that that woman might have seen in her head, one of her professors, or I don't know. But I thought that was funny. I haven't talked to somebody college age in a while, but I think that they think that they're supposed to know all the answers and they're supposed to come out of college knowing exactly what's what. And I just am trying to say that you can't know... At least in my experience, you don't know what's coming. You don't know what you're going to be doing. And if somebody offers you an opportunity that sounds interesting, maybe try that because you're not going to lose from that. And I think in particular with book publishing, it it hit me at some point that there was no preparation. I had no idea. I worked in a very large company. It was very old. It was very venerable. There were actually real people named Mr. Houghton and Mr. Mifflin, Mm -hmm. as was true in the 1800s. Many publishing companies had people, men's names. They were all young gentlemen who went into book publishing who were educated. But I didn't know. They had, they had, they needed a legal department. They needed people to do their IT work. They needed artists. I mean, there were so many different aspects to making books that there are some people that probably never touched a sentence. I'm trying to think what else. Well, subsidiary rights. I mean, there's so many different, you know, there are different aspects and it's a big industry. There are people know Pearson. That's a big company. There's so many different companies that are kind of less than when I started out because they all kind of merged, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. they are immense. They have many branches all over the country. They have There are jobs for people who work in warehouses. People have to actually ship books and package things. And it's pretty interesting. I've only had a few tours of those kinds of facilities. And I was watching people shrink wrap books once. (laughs) But it occurred to me that maybe I had written something in it. I don't know. But I'm just thinking, you don't, you think about where it goes and how people use it. And it's pretty interesting. Sales reps, that's a job I would never, I'm terrible at selling. I'm saying that if somebody likes that world, there are kind of a lot of opportunities in that. A lot of different opportunities mm-hmm. within that world. Right. But pe- people think they're supposed to know that. I didn't know that there were different kinds of editors. And also within editing, there's like an associate editor, an assistant editor. I was an editorial assistant, at, as I said, when, at one point. There's a hierarchy. Hierarchy, yeah. And it's based on skills and you have to go through different stages and uh, editorial uh, executive, the executive editor of the department. I mean, they probably don't do much but hang on to the budget and tell people that they need new, you know, they need to hire somebody. I mean, they, they do all the administrative stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but again, I don't, I think that that's when you're 18 or 22, you think you know this, you think you've, you should know this, but how could you? It's just a very specific industry with specific things in it that you couldn't know. So I would encourage anyone who's interested to just start start now looking stuff up. All the places I told you, <laughs> Media Bistro, Book Builders of Boston, Editorial Freelancers Association is a good resource. There are many. Mm-hmm. Go find some stuff. Figure out what to do. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening. 
To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.